Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, and welcome to a new episode. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Christy Cambron. If you haven't heard of Christy, she is a vintage-inspired storyteller writing from the space where art, history, and faith intersect. She's also a best-selling and Christy Award-winning author of historical fiction. Um, her latest book, The Paris Dressmaker, just released this past Tuesday, February 16th. Um, I'm about a quarter of the way through that book, and I'm just really enjoying it. So I cannot recommend her highly enough. I did want to mention that this conversation took place a few weeks ago, I think at the end of January. So when I talk to her, I'm looking to the future when her book releases. But now that I'm releasing the episode, her book has already released and um, go buy it. It's good. I think that's all I need to say before I get into the conversation with Christy, because it, there's just so much that she had to say, and it's a really wonderful conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Christy, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Your latest novel, The Paris Dressmaker, releases on February 16th. Can you tell us about this book? Yes. Oh, this is the Paris book of my heart, the book that I have wanted to write ever since I started writing. Um, I was an art history research writing major in college, and I was a non-traditional adult student, which meant I went to school every semester for 13 years. <laughs> no kidding. And, oh, wow. Yeah. My husband and I married very young. We didn't want any school debt, so we paid cash every semester. And so I basically had 13 years leading into my adult life where I spent time in the art department. I spent time in the slide library. I spent time doing internships and just immersed in this world of art. And the epicenter of that is Paris, right? So to right. be able to write this novel that is World War II, and you can think of it like resistance meets runway. So you've got this kind of play on light versus the darkness of war and beauty. And, you know, we've got a Chanel gown on the cover. And so it's all fashion and fine art against this kind of darkness of war. And where do we see that faith and where do we see that Christ sheds light in those dark spaces of our history? So that's, that's kind of the heart of the novel. Oh, that's beautiful. I started reading the book, but I was only able to read um, the first few chapters so far. But it's so good. I can't wait to find out what happens. I can't wait to read the rest. Um, can you tell me, well, I mean, you mentioned that you love art. Can you tell me how this novel kind of came to fruition, how it formed in your mind? Yeah, it's it's so funny how you have a novel idea, which can either come from life. Very often, that's where I get ideas. Uh, I can be reading an article or, you know, watching a YouTube video or listening to a podcast. I'm such a history podcast nerd that I love to listen to all of them. And for this novel in particular, I was actually listening to um, a historical take on women in Paris during the Nazi occupation and how they defied the Nazis just with fashion, just with what they were. And I'm just, I was so enamored with that idea. And I remember talking to my editor after that and funny thing, she heard the same podcast. So she's an amazing history nerd too, apparently. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she heard the same thing. 
And I said, I really want to keep writing what I write, which is, again, that, that kind of space where art and history and faith intersect and find the stories out of that. But I was just so taken with the idea of almost like this haute couture, you know, French fashion runway idea that you've got it right here in a juxtaposition, like right next to war, literally war is out in the streets and you've got like ultra chic Parisian women who are just, they're like thumb in their nose at the Nazis, like right there. And they're doing it just with who they are with fashion. And I was just so taken with that and the strength of the women in that type of environment that I wanted to explore that a little bit more. That's so cool. So how did you go about researching for this book? It's an interesting thing, research. It's actually my favorite my favorite space of writing. And yeah. it has been for years. Um, I am a visual and a kinesthetic learner. So that means that I have to see something to get it. And then I have to experience it and able to actually like write a story around it. So anytime mm-hmm. I get the chance, and this isn't all the time, <laughs> but if I can travel, you know, if, if uh, budget and schedule align, um, our family likes to travel for research trips. Or I love the opportunity to speak to museum curators, college professors, other authors. You know, I love to yeah. ask them, like, just the worst thing that they can do is say no. And then you just move on to the next person and, you know, ask them all right. the details of like what they're passionate about, what they know, their, their life's work. And people are remarkably open when you jump in and you start asking questions about something such as fashion during World War II and, and what did that look like in Paris. And so for me, research is through the entire process. It has to start somewhere. And that always starts with reading and starts in the library. But for me, I like to edit as I go through the entire a scope of the writing process. So that's from manuscript to line edits to, you know, macro edits, line edits to proofing to you have a book on the shelf. I'm, I'm still wanting to hone the research. And so for me, it's just dropping little facts in anywhere you can to paint that portrait for your reader. So they get this authentic experience that really kind of makes the story come alive, if you will, so that they can find themselves just immersed in whatever world you're creating for your characters. Awesome. So does that mean you keep researching while you're writing the book or do you do the bulk of it ahead of time? I am researching from A to Z, my friend. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I will very often put notes in there that will say note to line editor. And I know that's two steps way down the road. You know, that might be six, eight months down the road, but that's something that I want to, I want to verify. Um, I am, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm big into that research process. So if you can find something such as on a date in Paris, what was the weather report? Like literally, was it raining that day? Right, I want that right. to be authentic. Um, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Or, or writing about the Blitz. Uh, one of my novels, I was writing about the London Blitz. And so I literally had this map of all of the Blitz bombings that happened on what date and what neighborhood, what was the damage? Unfortunately, what, who were the casualties and, and what occurred there mm-hmm. to make it yeah. as authentic an experience as possible? Right. So were you able to go to Paris while you were researching this novel or was love the, the pandemic love already? <laughs> yeah, love, love that question. I have not yet been to Paris, but here's the awesome answer to that. Uh, I have partnered with Author Fan Travel for a Christy Cameron Paris experience this August of this year in 2021. So we're actually taking readers to Paris to watch. Awesome. I know. I'm so excited. So (laughs) 
while I've not been there and I know I'm, I'm going to be like a kid at Christmas. I mean, I, I might even kiss the sidewalk (laughs) because I have just loved Paris so much for all these years. And uh, so to get to go and see all the sites in the novel, like to get to go to the Chanel salon as it, as it was in the same place that it was during that time to get to see the Louvre and the Jeux de Palme museum and to, to go and, and walk through the streets of Paris. And then, to some of the spaces that are a little bit grittier when you think of war. So to go to the Shoah Memorial that's there in, in Paris for the French Holocaust, uh, to go to the catacombs where you had a lot of the French resistance that was literally like moving in the veins under the city, you know, during this time and utilizing that uh, to get to, to step into some of those darker spaces. And then there's a, a newer French resistance museum that has opened as well. So we're taking readers to all of that, the beautiful parts and then the parts that were more, like I said, gritty and kind of war related and see how that space, those spaces intersect. So I can't wait. And we're going to, we're going to go to a fashion show. My poor husband is going to have to endure that (laughs) (laughs) a French fashion show. And we're going to go to a patisserie and learn how to make French pastry. So if you want to go with me, go to authorfantravel.com and you can check that out. And I would love to get to hang out with you for eight days in Paris. So I will get to go to answer your question. That's awesome. Last August, my husband and I were supposed to go (laughs) to Paris to celebrate our 20th anniversary. So I'm just like, oh, when can we actually go? Um, I'm not sure it's going to happen this year either, but I'm just curious. So what will you do if you get to one of these these places from your novel and and something isn't the way you wrote about it? I mean, maybe that's. <laughs> I mean, and you've maybe you've maybe heard it said that time heals all wounds. Yes, <laughs> so, I have so, heard that. So, so we could actually say, imagine if you will, what it looked like back in nineteen forty <laughs> or nineteen. Right. Yeah. It looks a little different in twenty twenty one. I mean, there the passage of time covers a lot and it heals a lot. Um, I try to be as open as I can about, you know, authors, we do our absolute best, but we're not right. available, right? Like I don't, I don't remember ever writing the perfect paper in college, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not infallible. However, we do give as much attention to it uh, as possible. So in really the journey of the characters in the book, that's what it's about. It's always Absolutely. about that. It, it's so much less about is every single tiny little fact in there correct? And to be quite honest, if you go to the back of the book or you go really to the back of almost any book that as an author, we try to give you like a breadcrumb trail that says, this is where we've bent history a little bit. You know, this right. is where for the purposes of this story, this and this and this, these are all fictionalized. And that's what it is. It's fiction. You know, it's taking yes. a, a bit of historical facts, such as the amazing women in Paris who fought for the French resistance and the, the life and death and the decisions that they saw, it's taking that and it is, it's wrapping a fictionalized story around it. So you do get some leeway. Um, mm-hmm. Granted, our readers are extremely savvy. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like I have learned over the years, our readers are so smart and they are savvy and they know their history. So like I said, you try to button it up just as much as possible, but I, I think I'll find when I get to Paris, the story is not about me. It's, it's not about me at all. It's right. not about what I've written. It's about the characters and it's about the real people who live within the context of that world. Yeah, that's great. So what, what do you hope readers will gain from reading this book? Are you, is it mostly just how, 
the strength of the women mm-hmm. at that time? Or do you have other like other messages that you hope they get? Yeah, I love, oh, I love that question. I love that question because there are so many ways that you could go with the answer. You could say, yes, I hope that women look up or read any readers look up the names of some of these women, you know, mm-hmm. look up Rose Valland, look up, you know, look up the women who were actually in Paris, who were working with the, the French resistance, look up some of those real people, but also try to imagine what it would have been like to have lived in that world. Again, kind of making the story come to life. And even though I will say openly, this is kind of shocking. Sometimes people hear me say this, but I love spoilers. I love spoilers. Any any spoiler for a TV show, a novel, a movie, bring it on. I want to know every single spoiler to the point where, yes. And I know people are like, they have audibly gone, oh, like they've been shocked before. <laughs> and I've even very wisely, one of my mentors had said, but you're, you're stealing from the storyteller. Like you're literally stealing that story from them. But it's different in the context of storytelling for me. I always like to know where we're going. I all like, where, where are we going? Where are we going to end up? Because then if I know where that Z, you know, A to Z, I know where that Z point is, then that allows me to focus on kind of the intricacies of what happens with the motivations and, and what made this person do what they did. And so to answer your, your question, what I hope readers get out of this without giving spoilers, though I love them <laughs> without giving spoilers, <laughs> One of the things that really was on my heart, because I wrote this novel during the pandemic. And so you see a lot of things that are similar to the world that we were living in, kind of the the uncertainty. And again, I'm not comparing the pandemic of 2020 to World War II. There's no way you could do that. There's no way you could, just with the brokenness and the absolute worldwide devastation, there's no way we can make a comparison. But I did see some of the hallmarks of some of what women saw in Paris, you know, the, the, the basic kind of breakdown and closure of things that were their normal life, you know, like you had hair salons, the hair salons just, they shut down and all of a sudden something small, where do you go to get your hair done? You know, like like the small things comparable to great loss and devastation and uncertainty, even like in the government and things like that, Mm -hmm. you see that. So I had one character in particular, again, no spoilers, but one character who, by all means, like she did everything right. She had integrity. She even ended up fighting with the resistance. And one of these characters, she, she clings to God. She clings to faith. She clings to her family and she does everything right. And it still doesn't work out for her the way that we would see as being just and right and fair. And what do you do in that situation when you're a believer and you're following Christ and you think, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why is this happening to me? God, I did everything you asked me to do. I had integrity. I did everything right. And it still didn't work out. I wanted readers to walk away knowing the truth that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is with you in those moments. And even so, God is still good. That's what I wanted readers to get out of this story. And I hope they do. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Um, now, since you love spoilers, I'm going to go out on a, <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you are probably a plotter when you write. Oh, what a fantastic guess. But no, I am not a no. plotter at all. I am not a plotter, not even one little bit. But here's, here's the funny thing about that. I've been writing, this is my eighth novel, The Paris Dressmaker, and I'm working on novels nine and 10 after that. And for every single novel so far, 
I have written in what's called the literary sandwich. I know this is this is going to sound really scary to you aspiring authors who are listening and, you're, and you're, you're hoping to get like a clear cut plan for how to write a novel. I am not that person. <laughs> right. So here's the literary sandwich. The literary sandwich is I always know the very first scene in a novel. I can see it running in my head and I always know the very last scene in a novel. Okay. And, and so it is getting my characters from the bread, the outside <laughs> to the other slice of bread. It's getting them through the entire thing. And that is probably one of the main reasons why I love and write a nonlinear narrative. Because again, I know that spoiler. I know where my characters need yeah. to end up. So but you do know the, the end. I That's... do know the end, but there's no plotting, no plotting involved, right. except to stay organized between shifting yeah. plot lines, uh, storylines. But other than that, there's no plotting. I will literally sit down at the computer and I have had a situation where I was writing one novel and I didn't know who the villain was until almost the last chapter. And I literally will sit down with God and just prayer and, okay, God, off we go. Like, this is our time to spend together. This is our time to create and have an, a blast together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I never know how that's, I wish I could be a plotter. I have some friends who are, and they are just incredible people, but I don't, I can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. I know how you feel. I have tried plotting, but I always know kind of where I'm going, but what direction I'm going, (laughs) but I don't, I don't even know the end. So you're in that way. You're one step better, I guess. (laughs) I just like, it's like landing in the, it's like landing in the French Riviera. It's beautiful. It's incredible. You kind of know what it looks like, but you're like, how, how did you get there? What, what plane did you take? Like what date did you arrive? Like literally, how are you getting there? Uh, No idea until the Lord shows me (laughs) what that's supposed to look like for each novel. So it's a, it's a journey in and of itself for each book. Yeah. I love that though. How you bring out that you're like, creating with God. God is, mm. you know, you're co- co-creating with him, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's so cool. So tell me a little bit about your career. I understand you weren't always a writer. You told me you yeah. went to school for art and was it art history? I'm sorry. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah. I actually went to school, uh, as I said, as a non-traditional adult student for 13 right. years um, for art history and research writing. And that goes back to when I was a kid. I wanted to be a Disney animator. I mean, from the, the time that I can remember, maybe I don't know, wow. five or seven years old, like that was the dream. And I loved stories. But I'm a child of the you know 80s and 90s, and they didn't yeah. have all the computer-aided design back then. It was like, basically, you were a masterful artist at drawing where mm-hmm. that was it. Like you're going to have to find another career path. And for me, I-, I loved visual storytelling. I used to go to the library with my mom and sister every week in the summer. And I would sit down in the art section on the floor of the library. And I would have these volumes of art history and Disney animation. I just thumb through all the stories. And I didn't understand then but the Lord was cultivating this kind of love on my heart for storytelling. But for someone who can see this in her head, but can't get it out on paper. Like, what do you do with that? (laughs) So uh, it wasn't until I stepped into my first college classroom, art history. And I did the thing that you probably should never do, but I signed up for like one of the advanced classes, you know, it was something really hard, like Japanese art or something like that, you know, that that I stepped into the classroom, but Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart and just said, this is, this is home. This is where you're supposed to be. And it was then that I understood years later, I didn't even know I was going to be an author, but years later, 
I understood that I would paint with words instead, that that's how he wanted me to share the stories that he wanted me to tell. And there are a lot of things that cross during that time. Again, I said it was you know 13 years in college, but at the same time, I'm working in corporate America for a Fortune 100 company in healthcare, which is about as far from uh, the art world as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, I worked with some incredible people, but that was where I learned how to write. So developing technical uh, and medical curriculum for adult education and training classes, I was a trainer. And so doing that for 15 years taught me the structure of writing, taught me a lot of tools that you need as an author, how to get in front of a group and be able to speak, how to do voiceover work, even how to do some um, on-camera work, how to do a lot of the art and design that you probably see on authors' social media channels and things like that. I learned all of that kind of on the ground, you know, in corporate America. So to transition, yeah, to transition to what my heart and my love was, storytelling, uh, that for me, it was it was surprising that the Lord called me to do that because the plan was always to be an art history professor. You know, after I realized, oh, can't be an animator, you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, and I, that was the plan. Like with my faculty advisor, like we, we were going to have me, I was already accepted into graduate school by the time I graduated. And it wasn't even a month later. It was not even a month later that the Lord just impressed upon my heart. Now I want you to go for publication. And this was in the spring of 2011 when I knew nothing, I knew no one. Um, we we laugh about it in our family. Like I'm from small town, Southern Indiana, and I got B's in English. So <laughs> they're, they're, for our family, it was like, okay, God's asking us to do this really, really big thing. And we don't know kind of where we're going to be going beyond step one. We just know we want to obey him. We, we just want to respond to what's on my heart. And so we did. That's amazing. Um, so can you tell me like the next steps? What did you do once you felt that call? Yeah. So, and I'm asked this often, you know, I, um, I have a lot of aspiring authors and to be quite honest, especially those of you who are listening and you're an aspiring author. Oh my goodness. You have part of my heart. You really do because that journey is so unique and mm-hmm. it's not even just being an author. It's everyone who is called to a purpose to serve in a space of ministry. And, and because it, it will be a ministry for you, you will find out as an author, it's so much less about you and your name on the book, like it's not even about you at all, really. <laughs> it's, it's, about, it's about the reader and it's about right. connecting with them and connecting with their experiences and their knowledge and, and that space of where they are with the Lord. That's where the connection happens. It, it doesn't happen with you. But the next steps for me in just listening to God and just obeying him, um, one of the things that I always tell people is you have to read. You have to be a reader. Like you have to love and fall in love with story first. And that can be a range of stories, you know, different genres, reading in the faith-based market and outside the faith-based market, reading classics, you know, just just read. That's step one. And then step two, write. Like it, like every day, every <laughs> single day you have to be writing. But the next steps for me, um, I wrote that entire summer, just, you know, fingers on keyboard. And, and the work, I, I'm pretty sure it was pretty terrible. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> but that's okay because that yeah. is time. Again, that's practice and that's time with the Lord. And uh, then I went to my first ACFW, American Christian Fiction Writers Conference in the fall mm-hmm. of that year and pitched my work to six agents and editors. We had six requests for my work. We ha- About a oh month later, we, we had two agents offer to represent about a month later. Didn't know what that meant. Didn't know what was happening. Um, <laughs> And usually at that point, people say, oh, wow, like that, that sounds 
effortless or that happened so fast. And it, it did kind of happen fast, but it was not effortless because we had two solid years after that. What we kind of call those kind of the crash and burn years in uh, our family because it was it was good. It was good developmental time. You know, it was learning time. Yeah. And every time we got something back from a publisher that would say, you know, either I think you have a little work to do in these areas and you get really good feedback, you know, that helps you to learn and grow uh, in the craft of writing. Um, or they may say, we really like your writing. It just doesn't work for our catalog right now. Can you send write something else and then be sure to send us the next thing? So the rejection started to get better, you know, <laughs> so that's, like, <laughs> yes. that's, that's a good thing. When, when the rejections start getting better and more positive, um, that's enough to kind of keep you going. And, but it was almost every, unpublished writing contest I entered, it was, you know, kind of crash and burn and you get good feedback. But for someone who is a mega introvert anyway, and who has kind of struggled in the area of self-confidence and self-esteem since I was a kid, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a hard sell, you know, to keep going to, to walk with the Lord and say, okay, you know, I've got just enough confidence. Like it almost felt like a thimbleful, just, just a little thimbleful of confidence, enough to keep going. And then finally, I entered an unpublished writing contest. I don't even remember which one it was, but I forgot about it because I expected to do poorly again. <laughs> I expected <laughs> the old crash and burn. So I completely forgot. And so I was so shocked and excited to hear that I had won the contest. And the judge was an editor at Thomas Nelson. And she is now my editor. And we have worked together on these eight novels and for the next two after that. So um, I I believe, I believe wholeheartedly in community and writing communities and the investment of going to conferences such as ACFW and entering unpublished writing contests because that guarantees that you get your work into the hands of professionals, whether they are editors or whether they're agents or whether they are other, you know, your peers, other published authors, you get your work into their hands. And their feedback is, it's just incredible to help you grow and learn. And as, as an artist, really, as an artist, just growing and learning as much as you can with everything you write, like that's the goal. That's, or that's one of the goals. So right. uh, yeah, so that, those were kind of the next steps um, and what took us to my first contract in 2013. Yeah, that's awesome. I I have to go back to where you said, you're like an extreme interview in, introvert. Sorry, you're an extreme introvert. <laughs> yeah, and um, and you're talking about having a thimbleful of confidence. I know exactly what you mean. Um, however, that's not what I thought <laughs> when I when we were connecting for this interview because, yeah. um, you know, I was prepping for the interview and I went to your website and I clicked on like the media tab and I started watching you on stage as a speaker. And then I was like, no, I can't watch this. I'll, I'll psych myself out and I won't be able to do this interview because <laughs> she clearly has all the speaking experience and just, uh, you just come across so like confident. So it's both surprising, but also encouraging to hear that um, as with, I think just, writers in general struggle with this because this this career path is you don't get <laughs> you don't get a lot of pats on the back on the way especially before you're published or yeah. sometimes even after so 
Yeah, I love I love that you kind of brought that up. And it's interesting in thinking about being an introvert versus, you know, an extrovert. And being an introvert is the way that I recharge my batteries is very often in solitude, you know, in peace, yes. in, in quiet. But one of the things that I did very early on in corporate America was when I had the opportunity, uh, one of my managers at the time approached me and said, uh, I'd been a team lead or whatever for six months. And they approached me and said, well, our trainer has just resigned. Uh, we would like for you to consider being our trainer and to write curriculum. And I was rightly terrified, terrified <laughs> to think that you have a classroom full of people, professionals, right, who are coming in to learn yeah. from you. And I was terrified at that point in my life to get up in front of people and actually have words come out of my mouth and have all the attention focused on me. And so almost immediately I said yes. And that was because I was terrified that I said yes. And then who who would have thought that I did have this love of teaching, this love mm -hmm. of sharing, this love of storytelling is really what it was. Uh, tried to make my classrooms fun. And in every single classroom I ever had, the Lord was present in that room. They didn't know it because it was corporate America and I wasn't allowed to say that, but I always had an empty chair, an empty chair in the corner of every room. And he was welcomed in. I prayed over every chair. I prayed over every computer. Um, a lot of times I would do a devotion really at the more, every single morning we would have a devotion and it, we wow. never mentioned Christ. We all, it was always a, you know, feel good kind of story, but they never knew that I heard that from the pastor on the radio on the way in that, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and so for me, yeah, being an introvert, it's interesting because if you catch me at a party or you catch me at like an event, I will probably find one or two friends and I'll probably be hanging out in the lobby or in the corner of the room. In fact, when I go to conferences and I worship, I will get up from the table. If I'm especially in the middle of a, a giant room, I will get up from the table and go all the way in the back of the room. Mm -hmm. So that my back is against the wall, literally with the waiters and the waitresses, you know, who are back there like serving the drinks. <laughs> and like I will be back there with them. And, and they've literally said, oh, excuse me. Ma'am, I'm, like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just worshiping God back here. You know, <laughs> that's the introvert in me. But I love how the Lord can draw us out. And yes. so anytime I'm on stage, it's not me. I, I just literally will step up there and say, Lord, have your way. Like, have your way. What story do you want me to tell? Where are you to the people in this room? How do I connect you and the story that I'm telling? Like, how do I do that for people? And so it's actually not hard to get up on stage anymore because I know he's with me. And I know that the focus is not on me. It's always on him. It's so beautiful because, you know, it's not, it's, it's our focus on ourselves that makes us fear getting up in front of people and, yeah. um, and when it's not about us. So it's just beautiful when we can overcome that and give it to God and let him take the wheel, so to speak. Yeah. And I think insecurities, you know, again, for anyone who steps out, whether it's to be an author or whatever, whatever your call is in this life, the insecurities, it's, it's a very difficult thing. You know, you think about, especially in the, the writing life, you can go to Goodreads and every phenomenal author from Shakespeare to Harper Lee to Jane Austen, they all have one-star reviews. They all yeah. have one-star <laughs> reviews. And when you think of it like that, instead of dwelling in the space of your insecurities, shift that thinking and stay in the space where you are led by God. 
And that's another reason why I don't read reviews. I don't read positive reviews and I don't read negative reviews and I don't read the reviews in between because I want to ensure that I'm writing what God wants me to write. Now I do have, I have people in my corner who will manage that for me, you know, like my agent and uh, virtual assistant and people who will read the reviews for me. And if they see something that's popping up over and again, like a trend, like, Hey, Christy, this is something that's popping up in your writing. You may want to focus on that or improve upon that. I will, I will give attention to that. Um, but mm-hmm. other, you know, anything that will help me again to learn in the craft of writing. But other than that, I think you just have to not look to the spaces of the insecurity and say, what is God asking me to do? And just try to obey, just try to follow him in that. Right. Yeah, that's a good plan. The not reading reviews. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Now, so in 2013 was your first book contract. Yeah. And from that time to now, um, I mean, you won a Christie Award for the for the Painted Castle, correct? We did. And, yeah. Congratulations. So <laughs> tell tell me what that was like. <laughs> well, uh, I will say 2020 was a very <laughs> difficult year. Uh, And not even just the pandemic. Um, It's something that I'm not ready to talk about openly about what was kind of going on, except to say that there was just a lot that was hitting my heart Mm. in 2020, even before the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. 2020 for me, the way that I kind of see it is that it, it revealed some fractures kind of in the foundation of my heart and in my Mm. faith. And I really had to look to Christ in some ways that I hadn't before. So to have the Christie nomination when it did, (laughs) when it happened, and then just the absolute, just complete surprise, because I so respect not only everyone who was nominated for a Christie, but especially Rosanna White and Sarah Sundin. I I read both of their work. Like I know how incredibly talented they are. And I was completely shocked and blown over. And the the hilarious thing was, this is the first time that it had been done virtually, right? And so everybody, everybody who is on camera, like you're just trying to keep it together. And my family was right there hovering at my office door with me. And they knew the way that it was going to be done, like the the winning novel, they were going to read the first line from the novel. And I, I had already told them, okay, the first word and the line of my novel is the word thieves. And if you hear that word, then that means we won. And so they heard that word. And they erupted. <laughs> we have three sons and my husband. And I'm talking like I thought the house was going to come down. <laughs> and they were, they were fist pumping. And like, especially knowing the year that we had had, just knowing what that was, it, it just yeah. felt like just, just a heart blessing from God. And then to have to get on camera, like, and, and literally not know what to say. <laughs> right. It was, quite a kind of like comical, funny moment for our family in the midst of a year that was uh, just very, very trying for our hearts. So that was just a blessing uh, again, because this industry, they are incredible from the marketers, from the booksellers, from the readers to the proofreaders, the editors, the publishers, uh, the indie authors and the authors. I mean, just every single person in this industry they welcomed me in and they will welcome Mm. this inspiring author listen they welcome you right in because we all have it in us that we we love jesus first we love jesus first and he comes first before anything else and i've never met a group of people like this so to have a group of those peers cheer you on 
and encourage you in such a way, I choke yeah. up just thinking about it. Like I, I really do. And so, yeah, 2013, my first novel, The Butterfly and the Violin, to come from that process. And my first novel, when I actually got my contract, I didn't mention this, but I've said it before on other podcasts, an hour later, like we were so excited, right? Like our whole family was on this journey and we finally get a yes. And then an hour later, I get a call from my dad and he said, this could be bad. I may have leukemia. And our family, we went on this five month journey of me editing the butterfly and the violin at the local cancer center as he uh, had his chemo infusions. And then a gentle goodbye for now. And so he did pass after five months. and, And so he never got to see that first novel, you know, just the journey that our family has been on. And now eight novels later, and we two, we have two video Bible studies for verse mapping. Um, at the time of this call, we have seven editions of Bibles that are coming out with Zondervan the next day, literally tomorrow for verse mapping, verse mapping journal, um, a nonfiction anthology book that I was able to contribute to through Dayspring. I mean, just all of that has happened in the last seven to eight years, my mind is just kind of blown that we went from cubicles and corporate America and healthcare to something that's so dramatically different, but that is absolutely and completely my heart. Uh, It's it's almost like I don't even know how we got here, but it's a complete blessing to my heart to be able to connect with readers and to be able to do this. Yeah, that's just so beautiful. Um, Can you, since you mentioned it, Tell us a little bit about what verse mapping is, because I know that's part of your career. It's not historical fiction, but. It is. And verse mapping really lends itself to what I mentioned that I did for 15 years in corporate America, which is writing curriculum. So right around the same time that my first two novels uh, were actually, you know, the contract that I'd signed and then my dad passed away, the Lord began to impress upon my heart that it was time to step away from corporate America. And my family, we laugh about this because this is not financial advice. Anyone listening, it, I have to say that, but we cashed out my 401k. I quit my job, <laughs> cashed out my 401k. <laughs> and we said, God is telling us to do this, to step into ministry through storytelling. We don't have any guarantees except the promises that we have in scripture, but we don't have any guarantees in this earthly life. We don't know what's coming. We just know that we can't not respond to God anymore. So I did step out and I had my dad's Bible after he had passed away. And so this goes, he was saved and baptized at 60 years old, but he only had two years with Jesus before he went wow. to go see him face to face. And so I received his Bible after he had passed away. And the interesting thing is there are highlighter marks all over that Bible. Those are the last two years that he had with Jesus. And I realized after I left corporate America and I finally had time to get community around my my heart for Jesus and to step into a women's Bible study, I realized not only did I not know the Bible and didn't understand the Bible, but I wasn't choosing the Bible because of those things. You know, I either didn't have time or I thought I, I couldn't get it. And, you know, it's easier just to pick and choose a verse off Facebook. And that's kind of my Bible for the day. You know, it's easier to do that than yeah. actually, and actually do the hard work of making the story of scripture come alive. And it's very interesting because it's similar to what I do with fiction, you know, it's taking a fact. Now this isn't wrapping a story, a fake story, like fiction around something. This is actually taking what's true. Our mm-hmm. story of our history as his children, it's taking that. And verse mapping is just these five easy steps that for me, I just built around the concepts of curriculum design that I had used for 15 years. And it's just built around that to find the teaching material verse 
by verse by verse, five simple steps that you can do anywhere that unpacks scripture and helps you really dig up that context and make the story of scripture come alive. And so now we have Bibles, we have adult versions and versions for girls ages eight to 12 with 350 blank maps that you go through all 66 books of the Bible, map the Bible. And we have a journal that has blank maps in it as well. So you can go on your own mapping journey if you want to do like a book of the Bible, or you want to do something that is specific to around a theme, whatever's on your heart. Um, Again, it's taking a story and it's helping you, even though you're in the lens of 2021, it's helping you to have that story come alive in your heart, maybe in a way that it never has before. And to find that unique, really ownership, it's owning our faith in Jesus Christ and just kind of stepping into that story mm-hmm. world with him. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, it's been a blessing. It's changed my life in scripture. And, you know, it's just yeah. part of our heart that we could share it with other people as well. Right. That's great. Um, so you mentioned you're working on books nine and ten. Yeah. Can you tell can you tell us anything about them? I can. I the ninth novel is uh, as yet untitled, but I can say that I am in World War II again. So this will be a World War II novel. But again, mm-hmm. I wanted to take something similar to the Paris Dressmaker, which is rooted in the real life figures and experiences of women in Paris during the occupation, I wanted to explore something like that again. And I found an article that talked about a hospital in the heart of Rome, in the midst of World War II, when the Nazis came in um, to occupy Rome in 1943, this hospital that invented a fake plague. And this plague was so bad that they were able to keep the Nazis out, keep them back. And it was a complete ruse, the doctors, the nurses, the staff, and and all of it was a cover to save Italian Jews from the Holocaust. And I was so so taken with the bravery of that and what that world would have been like that I knew I wanted to write a story. And so I actually have a character who is from Britain. She's an English ballerina and she is under asylum in this church that is hooked on to this hospital. And she becomes entangled in this great ruse with the doctors and the nurses and the staff and the two American GIs who find themselves in Rome at the same time and how this group of almost soldiers, if you will, in Rome, how they come together to save Italian Jews in the Holocaust. And so I wanted to write something that was based in fact, rooted in the real history and then wrap a story around it. So I'm in Rome, 1943 right now until we have a title. Wow. And that's book number eight. That's that's novel number nine. And then the one I'm after sorry, that. Nine. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> the novel after that, uh, all I can say is it will be uh, centered around London and some areas of Scotland. So so how do you work on two at once? <laughs> or are you in like editing phase for nine? Great question. Yeah. And, and it does. Le- any author will tell you, uh, and I'm sure, you know, you could, you could tell anyone listening legitimately, it will, it will take you anywhere from a year, a year and a half, you know, two years from the inception of an idea and maybe the signing of a contract to sometimes you actually have a book that is right. on the shelf or that is in the reader's hands. It, and it can take longer. You know, I've had people talk to me and say, well, I've been working on this book for 10 years. And so Mm -hmm. a book doesn't always have a timetable, but I will tell you that when you are working on a schedule, now this is whether you are an indie author, because again, indie authors, professionals and looking for consistency for their readers. So you get on schedules as well. So whether you're 
whether you're an indie author or whether you are working with a traditional publisher or whether you're a hybrid and you're doing both, you are still a professional. So you're going to have a structure of, okay, this is when my book is due, my edits are due, and, and then we're doing the proofing. And then this is when we're doing the, the marketing and the, the promotion of the book. So you're almost always going to have an overlap. So there right. have been times, literally, when I am promoting a book that has come out, I am editing a book that's going to come out, and I'm writing a book that's going to be edited after that. And so you may have this sometimes overlap of two to three things at the same time. Yeah. And then you add nonfiction in there. So when I was when I was writing the Painted Castle um, in our family, we we kind of say that book was born at five a.m. because I was a women's ministry leader at a church at the time, and I was also working on this verse mapping Bibles project. Well, I was writing a novel at the same time, and so I woke up every morning, and this is where the discipline comes in. I woke up every morning at four thirty, coffee time with the Lord, and then it was a writing sprint from anywhere to one to two hours every single day before mm-hmm. I would go into work. And however long that would be, eight hours, 10, 12 hours, however long that time would be, that was my non-negotiable time for writing in the morning. And so to have that that book kind of born out of that, you may have multiple projects going at the same time. It's almost always going to be like that, where you're going to have the overlap and you have to find what works for you to be able to manage that and balance it. Right. So you're working on edits for book nine and drafting book 10. Is I'm that? actually I'm actually writing book nine. Yeah. And okay. so we, we haven't gone into edits yet. So at the time of this call, um, I am in my lovely local coffee shop corner hidden away. I have the, the most amazing shop and they are super supportive. And I have this lovely little table in the back. And if it's open, I grab it and I sit back there and I just fall into this free world. And it's funny because I leave the house and I tell my husband, okay, bye. I'm going to Italy, 1943. And he's like, okay, have fun. See you when you get home. Like, <laughs> he, knows, he knows exactly where I'm going and what I'm doing. So yeah, I'm writing novel nine right now. Um, and then we will be kind of editing, going through that editing process. Over the summer. Right. Okay. Okay, great. Now I ask all my guests this question. Okay. How, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Oh, I love that question. That is the essence of what an art history major goes to school for. Because history is so important because it allows us to shed, and I mentioned this before, but to shed that lens of 2021. I mean, it's just natural and normal that we are going to see the world as we see it today. But we have to shed that lens and we have to look at history as it was history as it was at the time. And that's very similar to what you see when you walk into a museum and you see a painting on the wall and you can appreciate the Mona Lisa or whatever the painting is. You can appreciate this beautiful piece of art or maybe question or say, oh, I really don't like it. But you have a response to that piece of art. But if you can peel back the layers that history allows us to do, you can peel back the histories, you can see what was happening in the world, religiously, scientific, you know, mathematics, medicine, society, culture, you can see all of these things coming together. And it allows you to see again, history as it was, but you've heard this before, but to not make the same mistakes in the future. It's why I'm Mm -hmm. so passionate about Holocaust education. And my first two books were about the art of the Holocaust and the Women's Orchestra of Auschwitz in my first novel. It's why it's so important to look at history as it was. And it's why I feel called to write 
some novels that look at war and look at prejudice and look at Holocaust, you know, genocide looks at some of these really dark spaces in history and how does God's light shed, just shed the light on that? You know, how does, how does God's light and his goodness shine through those dark spaces in our history? Because to look back is to learn for the future. And I think it's so applicable to our world right now, so much that we have gone through that it's really important that we're able to look at the world as it was in order to make sure that we can look forward to future generations and to keep those conversations going. Right. Absolutely. So Christy, it was great talking with you. Where can listeners find you online? Like what's the best way for them to follow you? Yeah, two spaces. The first space, if you are interested in learning more about The Paris Dressmaker and to learn more about any of my novels, you can go to christycambrin.com. One of the spaces on social media that I especially love is Instagram. So I do spend a lot of time in the Bookstagram community. So I would love to see you there. The second space that you can find me, if you're looking for some more information about verse mapping, and we make it super simple, just go to versemapping.com. You can get started with how to verse map. You can get linked with the tools and resources that you need, and you can get community. So you can join our study group and actually study live with me as we map the Bible in 2021. And at the time of this call, we'll be starting in Genesis and February 1st. Oh, awesome. That's great. I'm definitely going to visit that website because I'm curious about that. Yeah, join us. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Christy. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it and I hope we get to talk again soon. Me too. Okay, friends. Thank you so much for listening to Historical Fiction Unpacked. If you have been enjoying this podcast, will you please go to your whatever app you listen to it on and leave a rating and review that really helps other people find the podcast, people who enjoy historical fiction and might like to listen to the interviews. Also, the show notes can be found as of now at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. There we have links to Christie's books and a lot of the things that I talked to her about, like verse mapping or her trip that she's leading to Paris. So be sure to head there and see what we have to offer. So this week, I'm going to do something a little bit different and leave you with a quote from Christy Cambrin right from this interview. Um, she mentioned that to look back is to learn for the future. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week.